the mind by nature is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. All of the distress, the suffering, the chagrin, the frustration, the disappointment, the struggle, the sense of sleepiness and torpor, all that that you struggled with today is due to a visiting force that appeared in the mind. If we could believe that, if we could really take that in and just imagine the consequences in our life, all the suffering in our life is due to these impersonal forces that just visit the mind occasionally. <coughs> if we could take that in and really believe it, it seems to me that we would really want to understand what these defilements are, how they happen to appear in the mind, how to uh, work with them when they do, and how not to get entangled in them. Because all of our suffering, all of our unhappiness, all the causes of our unhappiness is these visiting forces to the mind. which is one I want to speak about tonight. So, um, what are the defilements? Now, for many years, you may have gone to retreats and never heard the word defilement. The def word defilements has a kind of like an, an Old Testament kind of, you know, defilement. Ooh. Well, actually, that's a good word because that's the power they have in our minds. They're what make us miserable. And so we should heighten our uh, recognition of them, you know, heighten the, the word we use them so that we really begin to understand how potent they are in our life. So what are these defilements? Well, in brief, they're all forms of greed, aversion, or delusion. Whether it is in the form of thoughts, feelings, moods, speech, or behavior. Anytime the mind is visited by greed, whatever you do, however you think, whatever you say, is a defilement. Whenever the mind is visited by any force of, or any of the many kinds of aversion, whatever you think, whatever you do, whatever you say, is defilement. So too with delusion. We could say that every defilement is accompanied by delusion. Delusion in its most raw form is not knowing or knowing wrongly. Today we've been addressing both of those kinds of delusion because we see how much of our time is spent on automatic pilot or how much of the time we're just not present for what's actually happening when we're not present, not knowing what is actually happening, that is a deluded state of mind. A corollary is we may be knowing, we may be present with what's going on, but understanding it wrongly, which is another form of delusion. So we could say that delusion is ignorance. It is just not knowing or knowing wrongly it manifests uh, in the traditional jargon of Dharma practice as the hindrance, hindrances of sleepiness, 
doubt, restlessness. And those qualities are the qualities of ignorance, not knowing, knowing wrongly, accompany all forms of attachment and all forms of aversion. It accompanies attachment in that when we're clinging to something, when we're attached to something, when we're identified with something, we're not seeing that thing clearly. We're only seeing a piece of it. We're only seeing a slice of it. We can understand that when attachment or some form of clinging is present in the mind, the mind only sees the pleasant aspect of what is being observed. There may be unpleasant aspects of it, but because of the blinding nature of attachment in the mind, we only see the pleasant aspect. And therefore we cling, we pursue, we, we crave that. Aversion has the kind of the opposite effect. When aversion is in the mind, and remember, it's just a visiting force. It's just a, a visiting flavor in the mind. When aversion is in the mind, it causes the mind to see only the unpleasant aspect of what is being observed. Confusion, delusion, ignorance, not seeing clear, not, not seeing the whole of what is being presented in this moment. The, the delusions, or the defilements, I should say, all accompanied by delusion, are so habitual, they're so common, they're so familiar, that we take them for granted as who we are. We hardly recognize them anymore as just a visiting force. They are so ever-present because of habit. Basically, we have allowed them to take up residence in the mind. They're not just here visiting for the weekend. They live here. And because of that, we're so familiar with them, well, we hardly see them. They appear to be who I really am. You know, you take a momentary uh, experience of impatience. And you kind of uh, uh, eternalize it and you say, oh, I'm always impatient. And then you globalize it and say, I'm an impatient person. And it's just from a momentary perception of impatience or anger or de depressed. I'm so depressed. And then we globalize it into, I'm a depressed person. And that's, that's who... We, the, the voice in our mind reifies this sense of self as a depressed person or an angry person or an impatient person. That misbelief about ourself takes root, gets reinforced with every subsequent perception of depression or fear or anxiety or jealousy or whatever. And that sense of self gets reified, reinforced, more and more solid every time we have that perception and don't recognize it as just a momentary visitor to the mind. Now we walk around with this personality. Our personality is, well, our favorite defilements identified with. The danger of the defilements is obvious once we start talking about them and pick them apart and seeing how pervasive they are in our life. But the danger is really that because they are an unwholesome state of mind, they are a defiled state of mind, we're not seeing clearly, we're, we're, we're deluded and acting on it with attachment or aversion or restlessness or whatever. When we act out of an, a defiled state of mind, the result is unpleasant. The unpleasantness that we experience in our life is due to defilement. 
some unwholesome states of mind, either in the past or in the present, giving rise to the unpleasantness that we feel in the body, tightness, tension, heat, you know, uh, all kinds of distress, physical distress because of these visitors to the mind, and the disagreeableness in the mind, the unpleasantness of mind that comes from the defilements. Now, by not recognizing, by not acknowledging, and not accepting that the defilements are there, that they appear, that they're, that they're around, only strengthens them. The more you ignore them, the stronger they get. And so a large part of practice is attuning our attention and our awareness to recognize both the grossest manifestations and even the subtlest manifestations of any of the defilements. Now, the teacher that we've been working with the last few years, he says, um, yogis, something like this, I'm paraphrasing, he says, yogis come to practice expecting good experience, but actually you should come expecting to meet the defilements. Because that's what's there. And if we're just looking for a good experience, we're hoping for, we're expecting, we're, we're, we're kind, of, kind of hovering over what's actually going on, looking for this good experience. And all the while we're doing that, the defilements are getting stronger and more tenacious and more deeply rooted in the mind. I want to make one distinction. It's a little bit of a refinement in, in the power of delusion. Delusion doesn't obscure the object. We can be present with things. Delusion doesn't stop us from being present with our body and mind and the environmental, but it distorts our understanding of them. So we say that defilements obscures the nature of the object. It doesn't obscure the object itself. So someone, someone in a group today said, oh, I, I'm, I'm present with what's going on. But at the same time, they were talking about a defiled state of mind. And yes, we can be present with what's going on and understanding it wrongly because of delusion. So we say, awareness alone is not enough. We really need to understand how we're observing and how we understand what we are aware of in practice. So in the whole spectrum of living with defilements, there's a gradient of, you know, from bad to better or from worst, bad to worse. Or, um, and the first, uh, the most, the grossest form of defiled state of mind is when we are just lost in them. We don't recognize them. We don't even recognize that it's an unwholesome state of mind. We're lost in it. We're acting it out with reckless abandon. And there are states of mind that are defiled states of mind that we do that with, whether it's jealousy or anger. Most of us know, oh, anger, that, that's not so good. Jealousy, that's not so good. Pride, well, pride is just a, just a slight, uh, it's just, you know, when you feel really confident and really have a lot of gratitude and really confident, and then you attach to it, boop, pride. So sometimes we slip into pride not recognizing that it's a defiled state of mind. And so we act it out, we puff ourselves up, and we're floating through life just full of ourselves acting it out. We say that this level of defiled state of mind is transgressive because it impacts other people. We speak it, we act it, we're putting it out there and you know if it's anger, if it's jealousy, if it's fear, if it's desire, it's impacting other people, causing them also to suffer. We could say that there's no knowledge of the defilement, there's no awareness of it, there's no even 
conceptual understanding that this is an unwholesome state of mind. The real danger of that degree of defilement is we have no second thoughts. We have no hesitation. We have no regret, no remorse, because we don't know there's a defiled state of mind. So it's important that we hear about the defilement so that we can begin to recognize these states of mind as being defilements. Now, you know, the big five are greed, hatred, uh, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. But in the text, there's more than a thousand listed. I haven't yet compiled them, but I'm working on it. (laughs) So you can imagine there's a lot of states of mind, subtle as they may be, some, that are defiled that we may not be recognizing. With a little bit of instruction, with a little bit of uh, understanding, a little bit of practice, we begin to recognize states of mind that cause suffering. But often we experience them as being overwhelming. And even today, I'm sure there have been times when something comes up, you know, some fear or some anxiety or some sleepiness or rest, something comes up, and it's just overwhelming. You, you know it's uh, a state of not being aware, not being at ease, not being balanced, not able to let go, and yet you can't do anything about it. You can try. You know you're aware that there's some knowledge that it's an unwholesome state of mind, but it's overwhelming. In that situation, we, we end up kind of struggling with it, trying to get rid of it, trying to slip away from it, trying to distract ourselves from it, and not too successfully most of the time. And we often offer uh, antidotes for that, that level of uh, defiled state of mind. You know, if you're really sleepy, stand up. Not many people fall asleep standing up. You might be the first, but you should try it. Or when uh, aversion, some form of anger or criticism or self-judgment is really strong, we can use metta as, when I say really strong, I mean overwhelming, where you're just wallowing in it and you, you can't be mindful of it. That's an appropriate time to use metta to to calm it down, to, to tranquilize that, le- that energy in the mind so that we can then begin to see it a little more clearly. So we use antidotes to suppress or to, to kind of calm the, the defiled mind that's overwhelmed. And then as we get more aware, as we, we strengthen the awareness, through just continuity of being aware, we can begin to work more in a more refined way with the defilements, where we're not just suppressing them or distracting ourselves from them, but we're actually able to start to look at them, to feel them, and to begin to understand them. But we may use meditative technique to avoid dealing with them. Now, we spoke about this earlier this morning in answer to one of the questions, how, uh, for example, metta can be an antidote to overwhelming aversion, hatred, anger, irritation, self-judgment. But at some point, we want to understand, we want to really begin to understand how we get caught in this form of aversion so that we can see it coming and you know, keep our distance or take steps to avoid getting entangled in that defilement. So to do that, we need to understand how we get caught. If we keep going to metta every time there's aversion in the mind, we're not going to develop that understanding. <laughs> or... Another one is to sometimes uh, 
practice forgiveness when you're really feeling resentful. And we can, we can do that. And at times we can really try practicing forgiveness and, and not deal with the resentment that we feel. But at some point we want to look at this resentment. And that, that requires a different approach, putting aside the antidote so that you can actually open to and feel and come to know how resentment gets, when it appears in the mind, how we get entangled in it. How we don't just see it as a visitor that's come to the door, passing through and leaving. When it comes to the door, we grab onto it, say, come in, you own the house. <laughs> How do we work with the defilements? Well, the first is we need this kind of information. We need to recognize that, we need to hear that there are these states of mind that visit, cause us a lot of suffering. We need to identify what the grossest forms of them are need to know the varieties of the defilements, if you will, how they appear, how they change, what they feel like. And we need to understand that they are dangerous. They're dangerous because they cause us suffering. If we don't believe that and we think, oh, it's okay to be, it's okay to be frustrated, it's okay to be angry, it's okay to be critical, judgmental, cynical, cynicism. Our country, our <laughs> political discourse thrives on cynicism. And yet, cynicism is a defiled state of mind. So, if we don't know that it's a defiled state of mind, we'll engage, indulge, and act it out as if no problem. All the while, there's a level, a certain level of suffering we may not yet be attuned to, but as we refine our uh, understanding and as we develop more, uh, more understanding through awareness, we'll see what the suffering of cynicism really is. With the knowledge, with some information about the defilements, we can begin to recognize them. And this is not as easy as it might sound. We hear the words uh, or the name of some of these defilements, but to recognize them requires that we somehow begin to recognize them internally, when they appear internally. Sometimes we can see it in the grossest form in other people. Sometimes, of course, we recognize it in ourselves. But many of these mental states or defilements are, we only have a word for them. We don't really have the experience that that word refers to, and so it's difficult to recognize. Back in many years ago now, when I did my first three-month retreat here. I got started, and the first couple of weeks was okay. And then in the middle of it, I had this six-week period where I was dealing with sloth and torpor. Didn't recognize it. Didn't recognize it. I was sitting there, bobbing and nodding and did not have the wherewithal, didn't have the, the, the capacity of mind to say, this is sloth and torpor, or this is torpor. I was struggling with it. I was doing all, I was applying all the antidotes that I could think of, and I would get new ones at every interview, but somehow it never, it never really, I never really grokked it, never really recognized it for what it was. And we can do that. We can be wallowing in one of these defiled states of mind and not recognize it because it is so powerful. And when they're present, mindfulness or awareness is not. So when we, when we can recognize and begin to, to see, oh, this is what's going on, often the first impulse is to deny it <laughs> or get rid of it. And that is only strengthening it. So let me offer an alternative. When you recognize a defilement, relax. It's already there. And just relax. Don't struggle with it. If you struggle with it and try to get rid of it and judge it and judge yourself for it and judge your practice for it, those are all additional layers of defilement on top of it. So relax. 
congratulate yourself for recognizing, oh, there's a defilement present. Because even in that, there's a beginning to address it and not just act it out. We should understand that the defilements arise in the mind due to causes and conditions. If those causes and conditions are removed, the defilement does not arise. One of the causes or one of the conditions for the arising of defilements is habit. When there's a strong habit of indulging this defilement, it will come up more often. It's that simple. There are additional causes and conditions, of course. Somebody pushes your button, you've got a tripwire, instant inflamed mind. We know this. As we pay attention to our life, our inner life, our mind, we begin to become more familiar with what the causes and conditions are that give rise to each of these defilements. This is important. This is important knowledge because it is knowledge or understanding that removes the defilements. It's wisdom that removes the defilements. It's not you. It's not. You can suppress them. You can ignore them. You can deny them. But they're still there. They'll still pop up. They're still, they're still pretty healthy under the surface. But to actually remove them from the mind, it's wisdom or understanding. So the more you know about how these defilements appear, what they look like, what the tripwire is, how they feel in the body, how they feel in the mind, what they do, what kind of thoughts they kick up in the mind, the quicker you'll recognize them, the more, uh, more understanding you'll have not to get entangled in them. So with this uh, information about them and with this ability to recognize them and to acknowledge them without resistance, then we can, then we can really uh, begin to not only think about them but actually see them intelligently. Now, sometimes when the defilements arise in the mind, we do have to exercise restraint because we'll act them out. We'll say things or we'll act them out physically or at least we'll act them out mentally. We'll think about them. We'll, we'll reinforce, uh, of course I should be angry, you know, our self-righteousness that gets kind of kicked up when we're angry. Of course I should be angry. They you know, disrespected me, and they hurt me, and they didn't, you know. And so we feel justified in being angry. That's not freedom from suffering. <laughs> so exercising restraint by, and, and not acting them out, there's several ways that we can do this. One is we can just replace that state of mind with another. This is when we use... Um, like opening your eyes. You're, 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 you're lost in a state of mind that's really tormenting. It's just obsessing you. And, and you know, you're, you're back in the past. You're having an argument with somebody 10 years ago, and you're really entangled in it. And then you open your eyes and you go, oh, that's not really happening now. We're still being mindful because we're, we're replacing that overwhelming, obsessing, influenced by, conditioned by defilement, we're replacing it with present moment sense contact. We're being mindfully aware of seeing in the present moment, hearing in the present moment, feeling the body in the present moment. So we replace that state of mind with a mindful recognition of present moment sense contact. It's always a good um, restraint of, a, of obsessing defilement. Another one, another form of restraint is through reflection. And I mentioned already using a loving kindness to overcome anger or criticism, using forgiveness to overcome blame. Uh, use, there's many kinds of reflections. Just directing our thoughts to the antidote or what is a replacement for or a restraint for what the mind is being obsessed by. A third form of restraint is just to avoid it. 
just don't pay attention to that object which conditions that defilement. For example, if you know every time you go to the bulletin board out here, you're going to look for a note, and when you don't see one for you, you're going to feel disappointed? Well, don't look. <laughs> you don't look, no disappointment. It's that easy. Well, that's a minor uh, defilement here. But there's others that appear here due to where you go, what you see, what you, how you approach things. You know, if, if you know that uh, if you walk down the dining room at 11.30, uh, the half hour before lunch, you can see what's on the menu already. And you know the next half hour is just going to be thinking about it. You know, dessert. Mm. You don't want to be in that, that desirous state of mind? Don't go through the dining room. Just avoid it. Well, we can only avoid so much in life, but the Buddha was clear. You know, avoid what you can that provokes unwholesomeness in the mind. There'll be plenty of opportunities when you can't avoid and you're going to have to deal with it, but if you can, then do so. There was a, um, there's a, I was listening to Terry Gross on uh, NPR. She was interviewing someone, or they were talking about this poem anyway. I think it was the poet. And uh, they were reading some of her poetry, and she was saying, oh, this one poem here is very popular among psychotherapists. They use it a lot with their patients, especially patients who are depressed. So I was listening, and she read through the poem, and one line really stuck out at me. And she says, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. Which means... Take your awareness with you when you go rummaging around in your mind because there's dangerous content in there. There's content in there that is going to make you unhappy, going to cause you to suffer. So take your awareness with you so that you don't get entangled in the content that causes suffering. You see it. So we can use the information that we hear in talks like this and what we understand and we can think about it. We can, we can uh, recognize and, and arouse the intention to recognize them uh, in our life. We can also, uh, it's also important to reframe our wrong understanding of the defilements. The defilements are the result of a lawful causes producing that effect. It's not accidental. It's not a mistake. They arise due to lawful conditions. Just that understanding can help you uh, uh, put aside the wrong understanding that somehow it shouldn't be happening. Conditions are there, it's going to happen. They are a, a part of the Dharma. The Dharma is everything. Whatever you experience is a Dharma. When the defilements arise, they are also a Dharma. They're not outside of the Dharma. The Dharma is the way things are. The defilements arise due to causes and conditions. That's the way it is. So when we pay attention to the defilements, when we learn about them, we are learning about the Dharma, the way things are, the way the mind is. We're learning about the nature of the mind. We're learning about the nature of mental activity. We should also understand and accept that these defilements are deeply conditioned. Deeply conditioned habits. And because of that, we should be patient. They rise. They're going to they're rise. You know, they say the first layer of, of defilements that get uprooted from the mind includes doubt. But one of the last layers that gets uprooted from the mind is sleepiness. So, hey, you've got a friend for some time, you know, <laughs> going to be visiting a lot. You know, get familiar with this friend, you know, because restlessness, sleep, sleepiness, uh, they're going to be around. So we want to uh, be patient with their arising, but 
because they're only visitors to the mine, we should be really persistent every time they arise or whenever the conditions are there to give rise to them. We want to be persistent in our recognition, in our uh, restraint, in our reframing it, in our uh, awareness of them, because it is through patient not pushing away and persistent awareness that we're going to learn about them. And as I mentioned, it's, it's the understanding of them that eventually uproots them from the mind. As Sayadaw Utejaniya says, yogis make the mistake of expecting good experience rather than trying to work with the defilements. In the beginning, we should understand and use this even as a mantra. Thoughts are just thoughts. Feelings are just feelings. Sensations are just sensations. Sometimes adding that word just in front of your experience, in front of your noting or your labeling or however you're, you're recognizing your experience, really shifts your perspective. You know, we go from, I'm so angry, to anger being known, to, oh, it's just anger. There's a huge transition in the mind between, I'm so angry, to, oh, it's just anger being known. And the transition is one of letting go, not being uh, identified with that state of mind, which is just visiting. The benefit of understanding the violence is that we stop suffering. Temporarily, of course, initially, but in time and with practice, more, uh, more continuously. To do that, To gain this understanding of any of the defilements requires that we feel them knowingly. So that when a defilement arises, somehow we learn to open, we relax, we learn to open to it so that we can feel it. Just having it up here in the mind as, oh, this is not good, this is anger, no, 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 no. this is jealousy, this is fear, this is anxiety, this is depression, is not enough. We actually have to uh, feel it both in the body and in the mind. Because it's when we feel it with awareness that we can really get the taste of it. We can really come to understand the nature of fear or the nature of jealousy or the nature of anxiety. And actually, they're all just feelings. Just feelings. Why should we be so overwhelmed, so afraid of, so overcome by, so um, manipulated and pushed around, jerked around by just feelings? Well, we are as long as we haven't steadied the mind to feel them with full awareness. Then we're always running, keeping one step ahead, just trying to avoid, deny, dismiss, just kind of... And yet, if we have the, well, I say courage, but it's actually the, the stamina, the interest and the stamina to just be there and just see, oh, this is what that feels like. This is what it feels like to be really whatever not acting it out, not justifying it, not running away. And an amazing thing happens when we can encourage ourselves to steady the attention on these, any of these feelings, is we discover that, well, they're all unpleasant, and they don't last very long. We can run from them for decades. But if you actually turn around and look at them, they don't last more than a split second, really. They don't last long. But it takes that courage. It takes that willingness to say, you know what? I am tired of running away from whatever. 
let, let me feel it. Let me, let me just die of restlessness. If, if restlessness is going to pester me like this for the rest of my life, I'd rather die. Let me just die. Just, and, well, you may feel like you're dying. And in fact, some sense of yourself does die. It's that sense of self that is tormented by that defilement. Again, Saito Tejaniya says, the mind is not yours. Meaning, what comes into the mind, what the mind receives, well, mostly we don't get to choose that. But he goes on to say, but you're responsible for it. You know, you've got to deal with it. What comes into the mind, choose. Conditions. But you've got to deal with it. And how you deal with it is your responsibility. Whether you fear it, whether you indulge in it, whether you act it out, whether you are angry at it, that's our responsibility. It says, don't try to avoid objects and experiences in life, but rather be cautious not to get entangled in them. Don't try to avoid experiences in life, but be really careful that you don't get involved or entangled in them through one of the defilements. That's where the suffering happens. You know, the mind, what's the Buddha say? The mind says, the Buddha says something like, the mind is quick and light and it can go anywhere at any time. The mind can go anywhere at any time. Anything can come into the mind at any time. We can't avoid it. This is what the mind does. The mind is just alive. It's dynamic. It's, it's looking around all the time. It's hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, imagining, fantasizing, remembering, planning, perceiving, all kinds of stuff. How in the world are you ever going to edit? Forget it. The direction of insight practice is to be open that, to all that. But to be so clear and understand it so well that you don't get jerked around by it. You don't get overwhelmed by it. You don't get fearful. You don't get entangled with it. Because you understand. Each and every appearance that arises in the mind. And as long as you're aware of the defilements, you're doing fine. As long as you're aware of them. The fact that they're there, they're beyond your control. It's habit. Trying to get rid of them, that's another defilement. Just be aware of them. When they're there, you can approach them with interest and learn about them. And it's this understanding that ultimately uproots them from the mind. So, with that as an introduction, let me speak a little bit about some of the familiar um, defilements. And the first that we often meet on retreat like this is uh, sloth, or sleepiness, and torpor, which is uh, heaviness of mind, sluggishness of mind. Is there anybody that hasn't experienced that today? <laughs> well, it's true. We all experience it at different times, not continuously. So it's perfectly natural to become sleepy, Saito Tejaniya says. If you feel bad about sleepiness, it means that you have aversion towards it and you'll try to resist it. This is a wrong attitude. Simply recognize and accept sleepiness. And as long as you observe it with the right attitude, you are meditating. Simply don't struggle with it. Don't struggle with sleepiness. It's going to come. But rather, relax. See it, recognize it, and be willing to feel it. I don't mean feel it and indulge in it, taking a nap. I mean feel it with awareness, to feel what torpid mind is like, what a sleepy mind is like. We can, and this is one of the great I mean, paradoxes of, of uh, awareness or Dharma practice. We can be mindful of sleepiness. 
Normally we think you're either sleepy or you're mindful. Let me get rid of the sleepiness in order that I can do my practice. But actually, if you're curious enough, maybe, energetic enough, when you're sleepy, you know you're sleepy. That's being aware. Now feel it with a little more uh, awareness at the time it's happening, then you're being mindful of it. Of course, there are many reflections to arouse a sense of urgency in your practice, in your life, to recognize that, you know, time goes by. Actually, a lifetime goes by rather quickly. When you start looking at this uh, mind and the transformation of the mind that the path of practice leads us on. When we have that understanding of just how quickly life passes and how, well, difficult it is really to transform the mind, we will want to use our time wisely. I don't mean to be, to force yourself in an unskillful way, but to not miss an opportunity. Be mindful, be aware. Ramana Maharshi says, No one succeeds without effort. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. Right effort in practice is just persevering. Second uh, familiar uh, defilement, hindrance in, in practice is doubt. Doubt is a kind of a sneaky defilement, difficult to recognize, because so much of doubt appears in the form of thinking, reflectively, kind of, you know, having a little dialogue with yourself. Well, I wonder if it's like this. I think. You know, I read this book and it said it was like that. And oh yeah, I mean, but but this teacher says maybe you should do it this way and understand it that way. And it seems like we're having a nice dharma discussion with ourselves, and, and we're going to figure it out if we if we read the right book and we think about it rightly, correctly. We're going to figure it out. But this really is a manifestation of doubt. Doubt manifests as this kind of reflection, reasoning, analysis, comparing of different teachings. Actually, awareness of doubt is very different than just being caught in doubt or even thinking about doubt. Awareness of doubt is when you see, oh, this, there's this reflection going on, thinking about this, thinking about, and there's an awareness of it. One, one manifestation of, of doubt in practice is procrastinating. Putting off till later, dealing with what's coming up now. Whether it's sleepiness or pain or fear or whatever comes up to obsess you that you just want to, well, put aside that, you know, procrastinate. That also is a manifestation of doubt. Maybe not knowing what to do with it, or, or even whether, questioning whether you have the capacity, self-doubt, whether you have the capacity to, to be with it, to bear with it. All forms of doubt to be, to be recognized. Third, really, for some of us, frequent visitor to the mind is aversion. Aversion appears in different forms. It's just a, a vast display of uh, aversion in the mind. But generally, there are three gradients of aversion. The most forceful is the striking out aversion of anger, rage, hatred, 
whether it's in the mind or spoken or acted out, very aggressive type of aversion. There's uh, an internalizing form of aversion, which is aversion to and turning away from or uh, with not accepting inwardly, which manifests as frustration, disappointment, despair, depression, and just withdrawing from experience. These are all forms of aversion. Not being able or willing to deal with, to open to, what is actually coming up, what is being felt. And so the mind, out of its aversion to that, gets depressed, gets uh, frustrated, gets disappointed internalizing aversion. And then there's the uh, pushing away forms of aversion, the, the kind of fear that kind of pushes away the fearful object, irritation, judgment, cynicism, criticism. It's not striking out, it's not internalizing, it's just pushing away so that we don't have to feel it, don't have to deal with it. All of these uh, forms of aversion arise because we're not seeing the experience fully. We're only seeing one facet of it, one side of it, one piece of it, and it, it's unpleasant. We're seeing the unpleasant side of it, the unpleasant facet of this experience giving rise to the aversion. There's another facet to every experience, There's another side. There's more to it than what you're seeing when the mind is filled with aversion. So I, uh, when I was in the monastery in, in Burma, I went because I was really on fire. I was just, I really wanted to know what this practice was all about and what I would do. And, and in my first 10 years of practice, I didn't feel like I'd really gotten it. Uh, I'd done all the prep work, I think, for really, really uh, going to Burma. And in the monastery, I was just, I was probably intolerable to live with. But I was living with myself, and I wanted to see myself and, and deal with it. But there was another uh, monk there, American monk there, who was, uh, well, I would say, casual. <laughs> and he was not on fire. And he liked to talk. And he liked to talk to me. <laughs> So and he would take every opportunity, and he would make more opportunities every day to find some reason to come talk to me. And I'd be sitting in my room, and in Burma it's really hot, so you just have screen, screen doors. There's no, you don't want to close the door, you just close the screen door. And he'd just come to the screen door and you know, just talk through the door at me, whether I was, whether I was sitting or not, he'd still talk. And it, it got to the point where every time I'd hear him open his door down the hall, <laughs> I would cringe. <laughs> you know, and sure enough, I'd hear him kind of doo, 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 doo. get to the door. Hey, Steve. Hey, Steve. You know, and it was like, oh, I tried everything. You know, I tried putting him on a schedule. You know, only at meal times. You can talk to me <laughs> only when we're waiting to go to meals. You know, that didn't work. I tried. <laughs> tried ignoring him. He comes to the door, I'm sitting. <laughs> Inside, I was seething, but nevertheless, I was trying to ignore him. Didn't work. Uh, I reminded him that we were supposed to be in noble silence. He didn't care. <laughs> Finally, I said, okay, five minutes max. You know, he didn't care how long he talked. He just, he wanted to talk. Then I said, oh, now I got it. I know how to deal with this guy. Send him meta. I got to deal with my aversion. I'll send him meta. May you be happy in your room. <laughs> May you be happy being quiet. You know, <laughs> didn't work. So then I tried. Then I tried uh, feeling the aversion, recognizing that I was so irritated, so frustrated, so kind of uh, angry with him. I said, what is going on here? 
And I opened myself to just feeling the door would open and I'd just feel this flood of unpleasantness just go through the body, go through the mind. And I just watch it and I think, wow, that is really amazing. An opening door does this. I've allowed it to condition this kind of feeling in the body and the mind. Amazing. It's just amazing to see that that's what it had gotten to. Because of, you know, I cultivated this great habit of aversion to this person. But slowly, as I, as I kept paying attention to it, every time I'd see him, every time he'd talk at me, every time I'd hear his door, I would just feel how unpleasant it was in the body, how unpleasant it was in the mind. And in time, I got to where it was tolerable. It was like, it was okay. I can't say I enjoyed it, and I certainly didn't invite him, and I certainly didn't encourage him, but it wasn't so unpleasant. And gradually, the aversion, it just, things were just the way they were. I couldn't control it. I could deal with my reaction to it. And it was through this understanding and through this, you know, allowing it and feeling it with full awareness that I came to understand how that particular version was conditioned and how to decondition it and let it go. Now, please do not think that I do not now have any forms of aversion. I have plenty. But having seen it once, (laughs) I'm hopeful (laughs) that uh, I'll see it again or uh, that in time I'll come to understand it a little more. Uh, Restlessness, as as I paraphrase the Buddha, the mind is difficult to control. Swiftly and lightly it moves and lands wherever it pleases. That means anything can appear in your mind, or your mind can go anywhere at any time. Deal with it. Well, the Buddha goes on to say, it is good to tame the mind, for a well-tamed mind brings happiness. What does it mean to tame the mind? Well, initially it can mean to know how to calm the mind down so it's not running rampantly into dangerous neighborhoods. But ultimately, it's to tame the mind by understanding how the mind gets hooked into all these ideas and all these images, whatever it is that appears in the mind, the objects that appear in the mind. How not to get entangled in them. This is taming the mind through understanding. We experience the restlessness as a wandering mind. I'm sure you noticed the wandering mind today. You know, the mind wanders. You know, we sit down with all of our good intention to pay attention, and, well, I don't know how long it takes you to get lost in thought, but not very long for most of us. And the mind is just lost in thought. And when we're lost in thought, the mind is wandering. We say the mind is wandering. The mind doesn't go anywhere, actually. (laughs) The mind's always right here. But it's lost in thought. We are completely unaware that it's happening. Right? And then at some point, we come out of it, boom, and we realize, oh, I've been lost in thought. Now, you can have one of two reactions. You can get really critical of yourself and say, here I was, lost in thought again. Or you can say, what a relief. I'm out of that one. And I'm back. Now, here's the amazing thing. When we come out of a wandering train of thought, we can look back and we can know what we were thinking. You know, often you can remember what you were thinking about. Sometimes you can remember the whole sequence of thoughts. What is going on when the mind is knowing these thoughts and there's no awareness of it? In practice, we're not trying to stop the mind from thinking. We're actually trying to develop the awareness that can recognize thinking when it's happening. You can't stop the mind from thinking. But you can train, cultivate, and develop awareness to recognize the mind when it's thinking. This is what the mind does. 
So don't make thinking the enemy. Don't, don't make a wandering mind a problem. This is not the problem. It's the awareness is late getting there. So that's all we're doing is don't, as, as uh, I think it's Chanul, Koreans and old Koreans and Master says, don't let your awareness of thoughts be tardy. Yeah, when you're thinking, know that you're thinking. That's okay. That's being mindful. That's working with it. The wandering mind is not the problem, Saito Tejani says. The attitude that it should not be wandering, that's the problem. If you think the mind shouldn't be wandering, that's the problem. The fact that it wanders, that's not the problem. It's going to do that. And finally, the, well, finally, there's nothing final about it. It's just the next uh, big defilement is attachment. All of the things, all of the experiences, all of the ideas, all of the sense of self that we get attached to and identified with as me, as mine, as who I am, what I need in order to be happy. It's in front of us all the time. Waiting for the bell, trying to find a comfortable sitting spot, how much to eat, eating too much, wanting more sleep, wanting this, wanting that. It's just, well, it's not ever-present, but it's almost ever-present. We don't have to look for it. You don't have to wait long to find attachment, desire, craving, clinging, arising in the mind. It is, as I said, it is so such a frequent visitor to the mind, we just take it for granted that this is the way I am. No, you're not. Free Buddha said, it's not you. It's not who you are. It's just a visitor to the mind that causes that suffering. When you recognize it as a visitor to the mind and you don't get entangled in it, it just arises and passes away. Just like that. Because you see it and you don't get entangled in that idea, that thought, that belief, that sense of self. If you keep falling for greed and attachment, you'll never understand its nature. Take the time to learn a little bit about greed. Pay attention to its characteristics, how it makes you feel. The funny thing about, well, not funny at all, but the, the sad thing about uh, greed and attachment and clinging, craving is it always promises more than it can deliver. Always promises more. We imagine something is going to be really satisfying and it's not as satisfying as we imagine. And we'll fall for it again and again and again and again until we actually understand this is the nature of greed in the mind. This is the nature of attachment. It causes you to think that way. When you understand that, you don't get caught so much. It'll still come, but you don't get caught in it. So these are the defilements, how to work with the defilements, the, the necessity of understanding them in order to be free of them. Only when you're able to recognize, understand, and let go of the defilements will wisdom grow. It's not you who removes the defilements. Wisdom does that job. Inside Otejaniya goes on to say, when your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more, and this will help you to do well in life. So let's sit for a moment and let the words settle down. When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities change as well. 
And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more, and this will help you to do well in life. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. There's uh, 25 minutes for walking practice, and then we'll come back and uh, have another rehearsal of the Metta Choir. Oh, I invite you to come back and practice the Metta again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.